This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, the latest bad news on the GOP tax bill in the Senate. Harold Meyerson will report. And we'll ask historian Linda Gordon about the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s and whether it's true that Fred Trump, the president's father, was a member of the Klan. That's coming up later in this hour. First up, Amy Wilentz on all the Trumps. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, now it's time... Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and little Eric. Those kids have so many problems. Amy Willens, of course, is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, we have a new source on the Trump kids, their mother, Ivana. She just published a memoir about life with them and their dad. It's called Raising Trump. You read Ivana's memoir. What's it like? Yes, I did read it. I've done a lot of sacrificing <laughs> over the past few months with the books by the the women Trumps. So, um, First of all, I don't like to push a Trump book, but this is a highly pleasurable read. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's like instead of you're reading a real memoir, it's like you're reading uh, a memoir of a character who's been invented by someone. Now, that may be actually how Ivana ha views herself, like an invented persona who came out of nowhere to become this very rich lady. But it reads a little bit like you're taking one character out of a 19th century novel. And that character is the character of the Ariviste in society who pushes her way. Usually it's a woman trying to make her fortune because there was no other way to make a fortune for a woman in those days, push her way into the circles of the elite and live that incredible life. I had just finished reading The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton, <laughs> and I was strongly reminded in the way that Ivana describes the New York society she entered into of the world Lily Bart enters into in that book. Well, I know this. there's a lot about uh, her kids um, in this book. She is the mother of Don Jr., Ivanka, and little Eric, as we call him. Uh, what does she have to say? Does she have tips for child raising? Is it that kind of a book? It is that kind of a book, and I am so glad I didn't read it before I raised my <laughs> own children, or I would have felt sorely... Uh, minimalized by it, minimized. So I'll tell you some of her tips on child rearing. First of all, don't breastfeed. She didn't do this because it didn't mesh with her work schedule. And she is very horrified that Ivanka is breastfeeding her children. She doesn't understand why anyone would do that when formula works so well. What, what was her work schedule? She was running a the Trump Tower decoration she was she made the Grand Hyatt and branded it for Trump. Wow. He gave her a lot of jobs. Okay. Uh, of course, it helps to also when you're rearing your children to marry someone who owns a skyscraper that you both live in so that when you break up, he can still live in the building in his own <laughs> duplex or triplex. 
Another thing is if you're going to work and have children, it helps in rearing them to have two Irish nannies who live in. Also have parents who agree with you and agree to live in and so that you never really have to raise your kids. Oh, she also has a houseman. John, what's a houseman? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> His name is David. He's very loyal. What? Uh... Well, very loyal in in Trump land means has never sold a story about you to the press. <laughs> Glad to hear. And uh, who is her her favorite of the of of her kids? Of course, ours is Ivanka. Ours is Ivanka. Well, I think hers is Donald Jr. Uh, the firstborn, the cute boy, um, the capable one. She worries a lot about. Little Eric. He's really presented as Little Eric in the book. He's always too young to understand. He's always off somewhere. She really, all of her emotions are seen either through herself or through Donald Jr. Ivanka is just perfect. Mm. And I think that Ivanka is presented as perfect because... uh, her mother is grooming her for the presidency in 15 Wait. years. Exactly 15 years, my friends. 15 years from now. today? From now? <laughs> 15 years from now. She thinks Ivanka could be president 15 years from now. That's what she says. This would be, I guess, our first woman president? And the first Jew. Oh, and the first Jewish president, a twofer. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, she was a little irritated when Ivanka dyed her hair blue. That wasn't recently, though. No, and you know what was so great about it? Uh, Ivanka dyed her hair blue, and her mother said, no, this cannot stand. Her mother goes out and buys some uh, hair dye and puts it in Ivanka's hair, making it three shades lighter than it originally was, and Ivanka never goes back to her dark (laughs) blonde hair. Now, I I heard that uh, when Ivana was promoting this book, I think it was on the Today Show, she said that Donald senior, uh, her husband, did not want to name his firstborn son Don Jr. Is is this a true story? And what was the reason? So they're in the hospital room. They're cuddling the little newborn. And Donald says to Ivana, what should we name him? And she goes immediately, Donald Jr. And he says, no. And she goes, of course we're going to name him that. Why not? What if he's a loser? What if he's a loser? Good this, way to greet your newborn boy. <laughs> this kid is no, not <laughs> one day old. So what must it be like for Don Jr. today to know that his father, on the hour that he was born, said, what if he's a loser? I don't know. To me, it reminds me of Donald Sr. talking also. I think it was about Tiffany and Marla Maple's body and how Tiffany, who was like one year old at the time, would probably have the same attributes of body. Donald was more specific Mm. about those attributes. He sees children only as their future, fully mature selves, I think. And um, one of the things I wondered about Ivana's book is, you know, she, if she was still married to Donald, she would be the first lady. Has, Has this occurred to her? She, it has occurred to her um, when she was interviewed recently on the book tour. She uh, she did sort of call herself the first lady, and she she knows that Melania exists, of course. But she justified her calling herself the first lady. Well, I'm the first. I was the first of the first. <laughs> she was the, the, first. the ladies of the Trump. So okay. she, in essence, and she's the mother of the children who are all uh, infesting the White House, and so she feels her bragging rights as first lady. First, first-ish. 
First dish. First right. dish. Um, and um, is there any dirt on Donald Trump in this book? She's, you know, there's the scene at the place in Aspen at Bonnie's restaurant where they're all having a very nice family meal and Marla Maples comes up to the table and says, do you love your husband? She says to Ivana, because I love your husband. And that's when the marriage comes to a grinding halt with this announcement by Marla Maples. So uh, there is some of that, but there's no like inside dirt that you want to know. Like, did they fight? Did she scream at him? You just don't know. It just, the marriage comes to an end. And then the uh, story comes out in the tabloids, the, the best sex I ever had, Marla Maples says, leading one to wonder about her previous experience. But okay, so be it. <laughs> okay. and, uh, and then Ivana has to flee with the children too. Mar-a-Lago, uh, because she doesn't want them to have to deal with that. So, you know, it's that kind of stuff, but, but nothing really gritty about him. Don Jr. was was like a teenager when the Best Sex I Ever Had headline appears uh, in, the, in the New York Post. And I believe he was still living in New York City at that time, so uh, not too nice to Don Jr. Right, and Don Jr. was the one who was so angry with him and refused to speak to him for a year. And is there anything about that kind of thing or that thing in well, the book. There is a mention of that thing, but there's also the moment where, and I find this surreal. So they're all living in the same building, Trump Tower, and they're divorced or getting divorced. Anyway, Donald Sr.'s bodyguard, security guy, comes up to the apartment, the triplex, as she always calls it, and says his father wants to see Don Jr. This is when Don Jr. is not speaking to him. But Ivana says, okay, take him. So they take Don Jr. down. And then Donald calls up Ivana and he says, I'm keeping Don Jr. Wow. Even though she has sole custody. Wow. And she says to him, she says, she says, okay, keep him. That'll make it easier for me. I'll only have two here. And like five minutes later, he sends Don Jr. back up. It was just to mess with her mind, she says. Mm. It had, she knew he was never going to keep a kid. So that's like perhaps the most dirty dirt you get on Donald. Uh, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Amy Willens about the new book, Raising Trump by Ivana Trump. Um, Raising Trump, uh, you might get the impression this is kind of a traditional kind of self-help book about how to actualize your potential and, and be a better person in the world. Is, is that the kind of book it is? I think it's a really, really interesting book, not because it itself is so interesting, but because it's not uh, spiritual, it's not really a self-help book, although there are the wonderful tips on raising children, but it's more of uh, an aspirational book, like, look at me, let me show off in front of you, uh, let me tell you about all the things I have that you don't have. I mean, the reading public, what they don't have these things that she has. When she goes to look for a house in Connecticut, you know, admittedly a second or third house she's looking for, she doesn't drive around the way one would normally with a realtor and go from house to house. They take a helicopter <laughs> so that she can see the extent of the houses she's looking at. And she says something like, uh, I picked the one with 17 bedrooms close to the yacht club mm. uh, with a underground bowling alley and three large kitchens. I'm not kidding. <laughs> From a helicopter. So it's it, but what it, I think it says something about the people who love Trump. Mm. 
this book. I think she's targeting that same audience, obviously, because normally I wouldn't buy this book, right? I'm not a Trump supporter and I wouldn't buy it. Uh, but I think the people who will buy it just, they love the lifestyle. It's, it's a television, reality television, sort of rich housewives of Manhattan and Greenwich, uh, book and you get to see all of the fun she has and all of the places where she lives. And is there much about her life today? She's the spurned woman replaced by the younger, more beautiful uh, model or kids are all in the White House and she's not? Uh, or, is, or is that left out? Well, first of all, there's an argument to be made. I, I would not be the person to make it that when she was the age she was the more beautiful. I'm sure she has made this argument, but it's not in the book. Um, not so much about her life today. There's a little bit about the third husband, and there's another husband after the she third husband. She has more husbands. Two more husbands. Oh. And she had one before Donald, even though nobody knows that, for visa reasons. Um, but there is stuff with her and the kids as they are today, and the final scene is a scene where everybody comes over to talk about what life is going to be like in the White House. so But it's not very interesting because it's not very profound in any way. So let us, uh, let us move on to the topic of Ivanka Trump, who her mother says uh, is, uh, is, could be the first woman president of the United States in 15 years. Ivanka was in the news just uh, recently in the New York Times. Something about her work on the tax bill? She tried to stop her father from going absolutely crazy with the corporate tax rate. So um, she pushed him to agree to a cut only to 22 percent rather than all the way down to 20 percent for in the corporate tax in the cor rate. So she wanted a, a corporate tax cut to 22% and he wanted 20%. So she lost that one. But does this not make her a hero of the people? She um, she wanted to spend the other money on a uh, child subsidy. Credit. The child, child credit, credit. Child credit. Uh, you know, these are, to me, these are like little coins thrown to the population by the rich man in his carriage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you throw the child credit at them while really delivering to the aristocracy or the elite. Yeah, but actually they're not throwing the child credit into the bill. At least the bill as it's written uh, today in the Senate does not have the child credit and does have the 20% the uh, tax rate. But I wonder where the New York Times got this story that Ivanka didn't want that big a tax cut. I mean, somebody is is wants to paint Ivanka as a more generous, liberal, child-oriented, right. so potential that, president. So that maybe she could win the popular vote. <laughs> I see what you're <laughs> driving at. Yes. Um, the uh, the New York Times also had a story recently about Jared on page one that said his star is fading. He's no longer in charge of everything. Um, you know, he used to be in charge of everything from peace in the Middle East to reinventing government. And apparently uh, General Kelly uh, has, has curtailed his uh, activities and shrunken his portfolio. 
Uh, do you know anything more about this? No, all I know is that the portfolio was sort of given to him piecemeal, sort of thrown at Jared, and Jared took everything on happily. I mean, he wanted to do those things. And now it's being taken away, according to the New York Times, slowly and not publicly. Um, and, you know, since it never really amounted to much, to take it away isn't that much, except to say to the rest of the people in the White House and in the Trump entourage, this guy is not so powerful. You don't have to listen to him. He's being sort of sheared of his power. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't, you know, it's not so much a thing on paper. You may no longer do peace in the Middle East. And does Ivana say anything about Jared in her in her book about her children? She loves him. She loves him. He's perfect. He's perfect. She too. doesn't like the Judaism so much because she doesn't like organized religion, although the kids occasionally went to church when they were little. But um, she's very anti-religion, another reason that I sort of get along with the book. <laughs> I, I understand also she's very proud of her kids because they are good parents. They have spouses and they each have three children or four children and or five children or five children and uh, this is a sign that she was a good mother i guess everything is a sign that ivana was a good mother just take it from me <laughs> this woman was a good mother they are laughing in master control <laughs> <laughs> the kids never cried in the house they never whined to get what they wanted they never slammed doors okay they dyed their hair blue Okay, Ivana was a Nirvana fan. I love that. She was. She she uh, fled to her room upstairs in the top of the triplex when Kurt Cobain killed himself and sobbed her heart out. Oh. But then her mother got very sick of her and pulled her out and said, let's go to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so she's that kind of... She's very... Um, she never uh, stops mentioning her heritage as... A kid growing up in Czechoslovakia dominated by the Soviet Union and what it was like to live under the harsh reign of totalitarianism and how she learned to be wary and careful and well-behaved because of that. Because if you stepped out of line, so then in, in effect in her home, she becomes the totalitarian head of state <laughs> and the kids fall in line. And I think to a large extent, I mean, you see that when you look at a, the famous photograph of the three of them looking like, uh, you can say either ro uh, robots or zombies um, up in some high tower somewhere. And uh, you can see that they are, they've been well-raised in that style of being well-raised. Well, I'm sorry we are out of time. This has been The Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and little Eric, especially as told by their mother, Ivana, in her book, Raising Trump. Amy, thanks so much for coming in. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up... All the bad news about the Republican tax bill in the Senate, that's in a minute, on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. 
You can follow us uh, at Facebook at Trump Watch Podcast and on Twitter at Trump Watch PCAST. Later in this hour, the KKK in the 20s and Fred Trump, historian Linda Gordon, will explain. But first, maybe you heard the news. The Republicans have a tax bill. It passed the House. A different version is before the Senate. For the latest bad news, we turn, as usual, to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page and other publications. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Uh, so, so how bad is it? Oh, it's awful. It's awful. Today, uh, this afternoon, Senator John McCain of Arizona, who some people were hoping would uh, vote no on this uh, uh, piece of excrement, uh, announced he was going to vote yes. I mean, the problem, the fundamental problem, is that uh, whether you're a Trump Republican or a Ryan Republican or just a Republican who can't uh, really identify yourself other than being a Republican, you, uh, you, you in, invariably support tax cuts for the rich, and you do whatever you can to create greater economic inequality. That's the mission of the modern Republican Party, such as it is. And uh, when, it, when the thing comes for a vote uh, on the Senate floor, which will happen most likely tomorrow, though there's a chance it could happen very late tonight into the wee small hours, uh, I would be surprised uh, at, this, at the rate things are going if there's really any Republican opposition. And uh, just to stick with McCain for a minute, why did McCain in particular decide to give Trump a victory this time around? We all remember his thumbs down on repealing Obamacare. That made us hope maybe he would be a hero again. Well, that's a bit of a mystery. Uh, McCain's main uh, uh, crusade in the last uh, several months in, in the Senate has been for what he calls regular order, which means a bill should, you know, go through hearings. There should be an attempt to build bipartisan support, uh, and only then bring it to a vote after. Now, now that said, and that, that was one of his main objections to uh, the redoing of the uh, of the ACA. Now, this bill has had absolutely no hearings. It's had some uh, one markup in each house, which is when they simply go through it, uh, but no witnesses except one witness, one staff member from the Joint Committee on Taxation. Um, if you contrast it, never mind with the progressive tax reform, but with Ronald Reagan's tax reforms of 1981, which were the uh, beginnings of this huge giveaway to the rich, there were more than 100 hearings held. Uh, uh, but we don't do that anymore, apparently. Uh, this thing is being jammed through with all kinds of last-minute changes that nobody except whoever inserts the particular change is, is that cognizant of. Uh, so uh, Mr. Regular Order McCain, who previously said this was his chief concern, seems to have completely forgotten uh, that uh, this was uh, the, the sort of thing he's been railing about for uh, the last half year. Well, I, I heard a Republican senator defending the bill on the radio driving into the station today, and one of his big arguments was that this was simple tax simplification because now 80% of filers will be able to do the short form, take the standard deduction, and it won't be hard to fill out your to do your taxes anymore, and this is a great benefit to, uh, to all Americans. Well, if... 
A, I don't know that that's true, and B, even if it is, if that was the only thing the bill did without doing a major uh, distribution of uh, income and wealth further to the rich, uh, that would be great. But um, unfortunately... (laughs) There's more to it. (laughs) There's more to it than that. And uh, I, I, I might add that what we've begun to see in the last 48 hours is Republicans who are straining to uh, bring the bill under the $1.5 trillion uh, uh, increased debt limit uh, that uh, the the bill has to have under the budget resolution. Um, Now, one way to do that uh, is to make uh, the various cuts expire in 10 years, in 2027. And, uh, but, you know, apparently, it will uh, uh, shake business confidence uh, if if that happens to the corporation tax, so they have to get it somewhere else. But in the last 48 hours, they've be- uh, various Republicans, including perhaps most prominently Marco Rubio, the senator, Republican senator from Florida, have begun saying, well, you know, it's not like we have to change the tax laws uh, to make these tax cuts expire uh, in, in, in 10 years. All we have to do in 10 years is cut spending. Uh, and Rubio uh, went so far uh, in the last day or so to say that, well, you know, we have to rein in Social Security and Medicare. So now we're looking, uh, which is always the Republicans' agenda. See, Republicans are, are, are never deficit hawks when they're cutting taxes on the rich. But once they're facing uh, a debt that they themselves created by passing bills like this, they, they then say, well, we've, we've got to balance the budget. Now we're deficit hawks by cutting Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and aid to education and stuff like that. And so uh, in the last uh, 48 hours, they, they've begun to say, well, this is what we're going to have to do. So uh, those of us who suspected this was a Republican agenda all along uh, now have Republican confirmation for same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it, you know, so not only does this Will this bill be a giveaway uh, to uh, major shareholders and, uh, and and major shareholders? Basically, yeah. that's who it's a giveaway to. <clears throat> um, but overtly, uh, uh, you know, they're now saying that well, we we don't like the deficit that someone created. Oh, us? Well, never mind that. Uh, and and so we'll take it out of programs that serve the majority of the American people. I read that in uh, corporate boardrooms these days, uh, of course, they're celebrating record profits and record stock prices, and they're, they have not been saying, oh, taxes are our biggest problem. Uh, if they have a problem, it's that they need more customers they want more people to uh, buy their stuff um, how does this bill uh, in the long term affect the pr- prospects of people buying their stuff yeah i suppose the the technical way of saying that is uh, a keynesian is a supply sider mugged by the reality of consumer demand yeah uh, but uh yeah uh it, 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 it corporations are not suffering from a shortage of of profit or capital uh and uh similarly creating uh more profit by taxing uh existing profits at a lower level isn't really going to spur them to invest more or god knows give anyone a, a, a raise i mean what would do that at least invest more in theory 
would be an increase in consumer demand, which is really the major factor in corporate uh, decisions in theory. In practice, it's uh, uh, you know how much uh, they they feel they need to give to uh, to their shareholders. But uh, uh, no, there, there's no real corporate demand for a tax cut, uh, and uh, those corporations which still have uh, still rely on sort of empirical uh, data and reasoning uh basically say you know if you could restore the existence of the uh, vibrant american middle class uh then we can uh, uh produce more because there'll be more customers with money rather than an economy in which let's say traditional department stores go under and we're 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 down to more upscale stores on the one end and dollar stores and walmarts on the other end uh Barbara Ehrenreich uh, today had a tweet where she challenged people like you and me who say that this bill is not going to create more jobs. She says it is going to create jobs for uh, pilots of private jets, uh, concierges of second and third homes, uh, uh, salesmen of of fancy cars. Uh, There's uh, sex worker, high-end sex workers. Uh, so it's not really true to say that that uh, work, all working people are going to be hurt by this. She's absolutely right. I'm reminded of a, a famous quote uh, that was off the record uh, attributed to Larry Summers, uh, the uh, former economic uh, guru in the Obama White House and Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton, uh, who was reputed at one point uh, in discussing the future of the America, American economy to have said, you're either going to be Barbara Streisand or you will clean her pool. <laughs> uh, and, wow. uh, you know, I think, I think that that's paraphrasing uh, uh, Barbara, who is usually great and is, is, is also yes. great in this, in this instance as well. Uh, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect about the bad news in the Senate as it gets ready to vote and probably pass the uh, GOP uh, tax bill. I saw a headline today... <clears throat> The Senate is rushing to pass its tax bill because it stinks. Now, that was not some left-wing rag like the American Prospect or the Nation magazine. That was the New York Times, our national newspaper of record. Yeah, well, uh, you know, one of the the interesting things about the times in which we live uh, is... uh, (laughs) <laughs> in 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 the uh, uh abundance of, of of fake news out there uh real news outlets uh have felt compelled to be uh more honest and less decorous at times in their description of what uh, uh what's going on and and the times headline is a perfect illustration here's of that. here's and another they right. they, and but it, it, the underlying story is is very true yeah the more the more people find out about this bill the less they like it so uh what what's the line from macbeth about the the killing of uh, duncan if it were done for best done quickly uh <laughs> that's that seems to be the, the guiding uh strategy in in both houses among the republicans indeed that was picked up in a headline <clears throat> In the Washington Post, although they didn't attribute it to Macbeth, uh, deeply unpopular Congress aims to pass deeply unpopular bill for deeply unpopular president to sign. Yep. 
<laughs> yeah, after after you read the headline, in that case, it's not even clear that it, it, there's any need to read the story. I mean, the headline. Uh, yeah, the, the you know this this is a, a a bad time for journalism generally, but this may be a, a golden age for headline writers. Uh, it's uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, all the polling show that the the particulars of this bill are wildly unpopular. Uh, and and justly so. I mean, when when people understand that the bill essentially is an upward redistribution of income and wealth, uh, uh, unless you're one of the people at at the top end who's getting that upward redistribution, there doesn't seem to be much reason to uh, to support the bill. Now, I found one good thing in the Senate version of the bill that I I want to share with you because it's something we've talked about before. The House bill we denounced. Uh, I think two weeks ago, because they've eliminated the deduction that teachers are allowed to take when they purchase school supplies for their students. $250 they were allowed to deduct. The House has thrown that out. But the Senate has not only kept the deduction for school teachers, they have doubled it. Isn't that a great thing? Yeah, it's really really terrific. Of course, they still propose to tax uh, a grad student's income, including the waiver of tuition, which will essentially create maybe twenty thousand to thirty thousand dollars more of income that graduate students have to declare and pay taxes on, even though they get none of it. Uh, uh, and uh, so, so you know, I mean, uh, there are limits to this uh, uh, to this generosity. I'm, I'm struck <laughs> by the fact, by the way, you know, when when a uh, uh, uh defense appropriation uh, is under consideration on the hill it's always been you know the case that defense secretaries come up and say well we want this we don't want that that sort of thing uh throughout the general assault on education that these bills have uh, put forth uh we haven't heard word one from uh our education secretary betsy devos uh it's, it's the silence of devos uh, in essence, and uh, uh, that that's a little uh, well, I would say that's a little disquieting. Uh, although usually when Betsy DeVos says something, it's not good, so maybe it shouldn't be viewed as disquieting. The silence is disquieting. That's a striking way of putting it. Uh, I want to talk <clears throat> in the time we have left about what's going to happen, assuming that the Senate passes this bill tonight or tomorrow. It has to be reconciled with the House bill. There are some pretty significant differences, at least from our point of view. And I am told that there's a that the Tea Party caucus in the House may actually be serious about their nutty idea that deficits are bad um, and may not be happy uh, voting for something which creates such huge deficits. Uh, let's talk about the reconciliation process that's probably going to be going on next week. Well, in in theory, uh, reconciliation, and you know, this is under you know the one A version of how a bill becomes a law, uh, is that a committee is appointed uh, from each house, uh, from the supporters of the legislation that passed, which would exclude Democrats on both sides, to iron out the differences. There's also the possibility. Uh, that uh, Paul Ryan will seek simply to jam the Senate bill through, because really they just want to say, okay, here's one we've won, and it's funneling a bunch of money under either version to our campaign contributors, so that's good enough. And under the if it were done, true best done quickly uh, ethos, that would be the quickest way to do it, just just have a, a flat-up, uh, up-or-down vote in the House on uh, the Senate bill. Now, if the Freedom Caucus, so-called, the Tea Party, uh, 
is really wants to do something about the debt, uh, that would make that impossible. And it may be that Ryan will decide to go to reconciliation as well. I, I should point out that either way, uh, taxpayers who live in states that have relatively more generous social programs like California, New York, etc., either way, uh, uh, they're screwed because in, high, in, in states uh, with uh, progressive uh, taxes or localities with progressive taxes, uh, in either version, you won't be able to deduct uh, those payments from your federal taxes, which could see uh, an increase in uh, a family's uh, federal tax bill of who knows, you know, eight thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, twelve thousand uh, dollars. It's it, it's really significant, which is you know, which is why I've, I've I and many others have said that the California uh, House members who are Republicans, all of whom voted for the bill in the House. Uh, we're, we're significantly reducing their chances of re-election, but you know that that we, we shall see where that goes. Uh, we've only got two or three minutes left here. I just wonder if you have a favorite terrible thing in the Senate bill. I know there's so much, but if you're going to pick out just one or maybe two, uh, aside from the the new corporate tax rate and the uh, effect on uh, low low in- low income people. Well, there's a lot. Again, I, I again I think the attack on grad students. You know, the the, the defining feature of both bills, uh, which is really unlike even any uh, previous uh, right wing tax bill, is they they really explicitly single out uh, Democratic constituencies uh, like people around universities uh, and uh, people in Democratic states. Uh, they really single them out uh, uh, for, uh, to, to get financially screwed. Uh, that, that's, that's, that, that's really, you know, this, this is new. I mean, bad as the Reagan tax cuts were in 1981, for instance, or the Bush tax cuts in 2001, uh, they weren't specifically targeted at uh, people who vote Democratic, uh, and th- these bills are. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. And now you can get a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Am I right about this Qu- uh, email from Harold? What's the story well, no, on that? You, you, uh, you, essentially, Bob Cut- you, you get Bob Cutner on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and me on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And how do we do that? Uh, how do you do that? Uh, you, you sign up, go to the Prospect uh, homepage, www.prospect.org. There's a big box with Bob's picture and my picture, which aren't all that thrilling, but there they are. <laughs> and uh, you, uh, click on that, and you can subscribe to, and automatically get these emails. And it's Kuttner and Myerson blogging, uh, blogging away indifferent to uh, other considerations. <laughs> Harold, thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up was Fred Trump, father of the president, a member of the Ku Klux Klan? We'll ask Linda Gordon. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening, Cherry Quickly. But first, the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s. For that, we turn to Linda Gordon. She's an award-winning historian who teaches at NYU and the author of many wonderful books, including Dorothea Lange, A Life Beyond Limits, and my all-time personal favorite of hers, The Great Arizona Orphan Abduction. Her new book just out is The Second Coming of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, in the American political tradition. We reached her today in New York City. Linda, welcome back. Hi, John. Glad to be here. Well, the Klan of the 1920s, we're not talking about the Klan of the 1870s right after the Civil War, the terrorist Klan. Uh, The Klan of the 20s, where was it, how big was it, and how secret was it? It was huge. They claimed five million members. It was all over the northern and western states, uh, much stronger in the north than it had ever been in the south. It was mainly nonviolent, and that doesn't make it less dangerous, uh, because precisely its, its claim to legitimacy worked to try to legitimate uh, bigotry. And the Klan of the 1870s was a secret underground organization. Were the five million members of the Klan of the 1920s, uh, was that, were they part of a secret underground? They were not secret at all. Uh, although I might point out that the, the terrorist Klan of the South claimed to be secret, but plenty of people knew exactly yes. who, uh, who were members. Yes. But the Klan in the North claimed to be entirely law-abiding and for the most part, they were. There were, there were uh, many vigilante actions, but the vast majority of members were completely nonviolent, uh, unless you consider their uh, really hysterical, uh, bigoted harangues against Catholics, Jews, people of color, unless you consider that a form of violence. The uh, the targeting of Catholics and Jews, this is something new in the history of the Klan. I don't think the Klan of the 1870s really cared very much about Catholics and Jews. You're right, absolutely right. The Southern Klan was focused exclusively on African Americans. The, the 1920s Klan, in some ways, was a huge backlash against the large waves of immigration that had been coming into the U.S. since the, 19, since the 1880s. What was really different about that immigration is that very few of those people were Protestants. There were Jews from Eastern Europe, Catholics from Southern Europe, uh, Orthodox, even Muslims for the Near East. And uh, the Klan was uh, an organization that stood for keeping America white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and native-born. I, I can't help but think of uh, the current uh, president who ran for office uh, on, a, on an anti-immigrant platform. It's kind of an unmistakable connection. 
It is. Uh, it is. I'm sure that anybody who read any part of this book would see the connection <laughs> yes. immediately. But when you when you look at the two together, the Trump and Trumpism against the Klan, one of the things you see is that bigotry can be uh, chameleon-like and very opportunist. Uh, the Klan uh, tended to adjust its bigotry toward whatever group was. Uh, available you might say in different parts of the country you know so we're, yeah california we of course we are in los angeles and and you say that the clan in southern california had a, a a different kind of attitude towards the catholics than the clan in other parts of the country yes they were uh, involved in attacking mexican americans and in doing that they sacrificed their cross the board anti-catholicism and even allied with uh, other non-Mexican Catholics, uh, but it was very strong uh, south of Los Angeles. Uh, uh, for example, Anaheim was uh, considered one of their prizes, and so much so that many people were, began to refer to it as Clanaheim. <laughs> I just want to underline that Clanaheim, the current home of Disneyland, of course. Uh, yeah, the uh, you say that the. Um the pol- what, what was the po- the police force of Anaheim? What was their relationship to the Klan? Well, you know, law officers in general were the largest single occupational group uh, among Klan membership, aye, aye, aye. and Anaheim was not the only place where the uh, police forces not only included many Klan members, but were really. Uh, more or less controlled by the Klan. Even, for example, the mayor of Madison, Wisconsin, said that his police force was more or less tied up by the Klan. Um, and in in the cases in which the 1920s Klan did violent vigilante actions, they did so with the absolutely open conclusion, uh, collusion, excuse me, of the police. Uh, the police... Uh, often deputized uh, Klan members. Uh, there were uh, raids against uh, saloons. This was Prohibition era, remember. Raids against saloon in which uniformed cops went along with uniformed uh, Klan's people. Mm. Uh, so this is also uh, something that has overtones for what we see today. You say that Police officers were the number one occupation of the Klan. I understand that uh, Protestant uh, ministers were also prominently in- included among the ranks of Klan members. Yeah, the Protestant ministers, uh, the Klan claimed 40,000. Uh, the Klan was always exaggerating, so that number seemed to me a little high, but it's very clear that thousands of evangelical Protestant ministers were praising the Klan in their sermons. And because of that, the ministers were a really important uh, recruiting uh, uh, effort for the Klan. The uh, Klan liked to uh, carry out particular ostentatious actions in which they would march in uniform into an evangelical church during a Sunday service, present them with a small cash gift to the great acclaim of the ministers and the, and the, the congregants often. Uh, in fact, the Klan could be said to have been part of or even a, 
an instigator of a certain kind of evangelical Christian revival. Mm. Well, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with historian Linda Gordon about her astounding new book, The Second Coming of the KKK. It's about the Klan of the 20s. Uh, You say they, far from being an underground secret organization, they were open, they had millions of members, and they were uh, political. They participated in mainstream politics. How, How successful were they? They were extremely successful, and this is what shows that their uh, decision to go legit uh, paid off. They elected 11 governors and 45 congresspeople, and I am talking now about people who openly campaigned as uh, Klansmen, and this doesn't mention what is probably thousands of uh, town, county, state officials. Um, But, you know, probably the most important political success of the Klan was the 1924 Federal Immigration Restriction Act. This was the first time that there was a uh, restriction of immigration into the United States, and that piece of legislation uh, installed into law exactly the Klan's hierarchy of uh, the races, or as they would call it, or the ethnic groups from uh, the Nordics, who were allegedly superior uh, down through the supposedly inferior Eastern and Southern Europeans. Uh, And, you know, it's worth noting, uh, because I think a lot of people uh, don't know this or forget this, that that law, the 1924 Immigration Restriction Law, with its quotas, large quotas for the British and tiny quotas for Jews, that was that was the law of the land until 1965. This is 40 years. Until 1965. Which. It's part of the 60s that the Klan-inspired restrictions on immigration were finally repealed. <sighs> big sigh. Um, you know, we need to get to the big question of Fred Trump. Uh I have read that Fred Trump was arrested at a Klan event in New York in 1927. What do we know about the father of our president and his relationship to the Klan in New York City? You know, what's important about this is not whether Fred Trump was a member of the Klan, but that he shared their views. It's hard to know exactly who were members because we don't have very many membership lists although we do have some. But, you know, the Klan's strength uh, came from the fact that in addition to their allegedly 5 million members, they had millions more who shared uh, that point of view and who wanted to participate in Klan marches and other public events of the Klan. So what we know about Fred Trump is that there was a march of a thousand Klansmen in 1927 on Memorial Day in the Queens, New York neighborhood of Jamaica. Uh, and this turned into a brawl with the police. Several people wearing Klan regalia were arrested, and one of them was Fred Trump. Uh, and that's pretty much what we know. Fred Trump was listed in the papers, one of the people arrested brawling with police at a uh, Klan march in 1927. I wanted to ask you uh, the, uh, the whole deal with Klan regalia. What was the deal with men dressing up in 
bed sheets and pointy hats? Uh, first of all, they did it because the earlier Southern uh, clan had done it, and they wanted to express their continuity. Because uh, we have to keep in mind that even though the Second clan focused a lot on Catholics and Jews, they were as racist about African Americans as the First clan had been. Um, but the 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 white uniforms had several functions for them. First of all. They were a huge moneymaker. The whole clan really? really was a for-profit corporation. Wow. Uh, and they not only charged a lot of money for initiation fees and dues, but they got people to buy these, uh, these costumes, which were, incidentally, very cleverly designed so that uh, clan wives could not manufacture them themselves out of white sheets. Hmm. But they were also symbolic because one of the clan's, um, you know, sort of underlying themes was purity, yeah. the purity of white race, and the purity of evangelical Protestantism, and the purity of not drinking, and the purity of uh, chaste women. Uh, this was all part of this very uh, racist ideology. So we've talked here about men dressing up in clan regalia. I know from your book there were women also in the clan, lots of women. Why? why? Did they join to meet guys or why? Women were very enthusiastic about the clan. There never were as many of them. There might have been 1.5, 1 1.5 million. Uh, we don't know exactly for sure, but I think we have to get rid of any idea that there's something about being a woman that makes a person immune from racism or even makes them uh, question the hyper-masculinity and vigilantism of the Klan. Uh, these women, however, once they got started, I mean, the Klan welcomed the women at first because ha having just received uh, the right to vote, in 1920 by the women's suffrage um, amendment, the Klan saw these women as just more votes for their side. But what began to happen, and this happens a lot in movements of conservative women, if you, if you read what they wrote or what they said, they articulated an extremely conservative gender ideology. Women belong in the home. Women are primarily mothers. Women have to look after their husbands, etc. But once they get involved in political activism, they not only find out that it's fun, but they began to challenge uh, the male control over these uh, women's auxiliaries. And hmm did so in a number of ways. They resented having to pay, uh, send part of the dues that women paid up to the male heads of the Klan. Uh, they uh, did a number of things in defiance of what the imperial wizard located in Atlanta wanted them to do. Uh, and None of this, however, made them any, any less bigoted. And I want to go back to the very beginning of the clan of the 1920s. How did it get started? Was there, a, there, was there a single event which launched them? 
there wasn't a single event, but there was a single uh, strategy. And this is really uh, important and unprecedented. The first imperial wizard of the clan who wanted to develop it in the north, who saw, had the vision that there was a market for this in the north, he wasn't doing very well. And so he hired a PR firm. To the best of my knowledge, this may be the first time that a social movement hired a PR firm. Mm. The PR firm is the, the the two people who comprise that PR firm. They are the ones that first suggested going after immigrants, Catholics, and Jews. But they also hit on a recruitment by commission strategy, which essentially was a pyramid scheme. Uh, a recruiter for the Klan could keep 40% of the uh, initiation fee, which was $10, and that in today's value is well over $100. The Klan was not an organization of poor people. Uh, so the recruiter would keep that 40%. Then the new member could in turn become a recruiter and find other people to join and keep that their 40%. But what happens with that kind of scheme is that eventually people run out of more people to recruit. <laughs> yes. And so the people at the bottom become resentful, and I think part of that weakened the Klan and contributed to its uh, rapid decline late in the 1920s. But the PR firm was absolutely state-of-the-art. They uh, recruited a bunch of traveling lecturers sent them around the country. Uh, people, you need to remember that this is a time when not very many people had radios, when films were brand new and were still mostly silent. So going to lectures was a major form of recreation for a lot of people. Uh, plus uh, print media. The Klan ran 150 publications wow. and two radio stations. Uh putting out this just constant, um, it's not only a, a, a bigoted harangue, but what makes it most influential, I think, is that it attempts to create fear. The charge was, quite literally, that the Catholics, controlled by the Pope, and the Jews, allegedly controlled by a cabal of financiers, that these groups were planning to conduct a coup to take over the American government. Um, there were a series of claims like that the Klan made, which I think to many of us today uh, would seem laughable if it were not for the fact that we are living in another period in which it seems possible to convince people of completely outrageous false claims. Linda Gordon, her terrific new book is called The Second Coming of the KKK, The Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s in the American Political Tradition. Thank you, Linda. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Amy Willens talked about Ivana in her new book. Harold Meyerson gave us the bad news about the Republican tax bill in the Senate. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. Stay tuned at four tonight. Uh, this is happening, Jerry, quickly. Trump Watch returns next week at this same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.